Hey everybody, Anthony here. Uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulties this week, so the episode's a tad shorter than normal. But to make it up, we have a special bonus at the very end of the episode, one of our bonus podcasts that we did several years ago about games from around the world. So we hope you enjoy that, and we also hope you enjoy the review and uh, the feature that we have today, our top ten list. I have a great time listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with a nice full episode for you. All right. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 331, Top 10 Board Games to Play Outside. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, everyone, we are so glad to be joining with you again this week, talking about the latest and the greatest in board gaming. And in particular this week, we are taking a look at our feature review, which will be games you can play outside, because it turns out playing games inside is a little more problematic than usual for some strange reason that we can't put our finger on, because if we did, we would have to use some sort of alcohol to clean up afterwards. But nonetheless, Anthony, top 10 board games to play outside. Are there, in fact, any caveats like there is with gaming all over the place these days? (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're looking at stuff that's not a party game not a dexterity game so you know no lawn darts no uh, <laughs> werewolf no just want like there's hundreds and hundreds of games you can play outside because you sure. just hold something in your hand or just yell at each other from across the yard none of those we're talking about actual <laughs> games with pieces and we'll get into what that means when we get to the feature but real stuff that you might have on your shelf all right so That will be our feature review, so stick with us because this list should help you get games out to the park, I think, you know, or at least a picnic table or something relatively uh, socially distanced for the time being. That being said, let's get into what our listeners are going into. Anthony, what's our question of the week? Question of the week this week is, imagine you're asked... To mash two games together to build uh-huh. your ultimate board game. What two <laughs> games are they? So lots and lots of stuff going on uh, with just this game plus this game equals this game. Apparently board game industry has become the movie industry now where that's how everything's being pitched. Uh, sure. So I asked everybody, you know, give me your mashups. What would you like to play? Uh, so AC said, I feel like I'm letting all my other games down when trying to mash only two. That sure. said, I think that I have to be true to heart and say that I have had really great consistent gaming experiences with Cloud Spire and Pandemic Legacy. Mm-hmm. So he's looking for a very carefully scripted legacy take on Cloud Spire, which would be great. Be interesting nice. to see the Chip Theory guys do any legacy, to be honest. Oh, my God. I don't think they could do it because all their pieces are indestructible. <laughs> I know. It'd be a thousand dollars. Be like, rip this card. It's plastic. I can't rip it. Damn it. <laughs> I'm hoping that their Elder, Scroll, Elder Scrolls game that they're working on has some kind of campaign where it like goes from thing to thing. Uh, probably not. It'll be some kind of exploration game, but we'll see. Yeah, unless the thing to thing is, you know, Elder God things, you know, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. So David said he wants to mash up Blood Rage, Rising Sun, and Ankh with okay. King of Tokyo. So he wants Ooh. ultimate dudes on a map battle brawl, gods versus monsters. So, nice. 
I love that. Yeah. Simon, do an expansion where you take all the miniatures from those three games and build something new with it. That would be super. Yeah, cool. that's great. A super crossover. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Andrew says Mage Knight and Pandemic Legacy. So again, I love where people are saying, I want a legacy version of this, but specifically good like Pandemic Legacy and not like all the other legacy games that don't work. Sure. <laughs> you know, uh, you know the thing we always wanted but never got. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> and then um one more here from Facebook. We got Carlos who says Anachrony and Nemesis. So time traveling aliens. That's what he wants. He wants it to be even scarier than it already is. Okay. I like that. All right. So there you have it. Got a few good mashups people threw in there. Um someone else threw an example in there. Apparently there's a Scrabble Connect 4 game. It really oh, exists. I know. So it's on Kickstarter. Letter drop. <laughs> Um, Matt, I think he's being a bit of a, a smart guy, uh, dominant species and dominant species Marine. Now you could think of it this way. Take the upgrades made in dominant species Marine and apply them to dominant species. Maybe. Sure. I don't know, but I mean, it's the same game. It's just, it's tweaks. Why not take dominant species and merge it with King of Tokyo? <laughs> so, <Ooh. I> mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dice, more dice. True. All right, so if you'd like to join in our question week, please hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. You can def- definitely reach all of us and all of our social media on BoardGamersAnonymous.com. You'll find a ton of articles, videos, just amazing amounts of content, and a great website to learn more about the latest and greatest in board games. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with our question of the week. Let's get into the games that we want at the table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. Yeah, I got uh, The Forest of Pangea. This is on Kickstarter right now. And it is a first time creation from Pangea Games. And it, it's beautiful. It's got little tiles and these wooden trees that look like something out of like, I don't know, one of those old 60s cartoons, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or something. They're like just very uh, stylized uh, shapes for the trees, which are, which are beautiful. But the game itself is... It's a strategy game, uh, but it looks like it's on the relatively lighter end of things, maybe mm-hmm. abstracty. And, and the idea is that there's four different elements that shape the world and everything on it. So each terrain represents one of the elements. And then you're going to have to swap them around, up change them, perform different rituals, and you know, basically build things in the correct way to get your trees out on the map and, and, and manipulate um, the space effectively. So... It's just got the three phases. You're going to move your personal spirit around to different parts of the map to plant seeds. And then your tree is going to grow and spread the seeds out. So kind of almost has like a photosynthesis vibe in terms of like starting with a seed and getting slowly bigger trees. And then you just add your little cones on top of the tree to make them bigger. But it's not it's not a pure abstract game where you're trying to like block each other out either. There's more strategy to it. Um, in, in a traditional sense. So it looks cute. It's beautiful artwork. Um, very cool looking uh, components here. You can check out the Kickstarter and they have like little animations to see how all the pieces kind of work together. And yeah, it's on Kickstarter right now. Um, you get, I think for like 50 euros, it's a standard edition. So it's got like 40 wooden trees, 24 additional treetops, all the land tiles you need. Um, And then the player boards and a few cards. So it's not a lot of stuff in the box, but it's it's pretty decent, you know. And then if you want the premium edition, that's going to have like the additional wooden tokens that replace the resource and life tokens. That seems to be the major upgrade right now. 
they just launched on Kickstarter not too long ago, so there might be more stuff coming. But uh, yeah, I'm keeping my eye on this one. Not crazy expensive, very pretty, and looks like it could be pretty solid. So yeah, keep an eye on it. All right, sounds good. So uh, that's our acquisition disorders. Let's get to, onto the games that uh, did hit the table, and let's talk about our at the tables. So what you get to the table this week, Anthony? All right, at the table this week, I got a game called Ohanami. This is not new. Uh, it's a little card game from Pandasaurus, and uh, a friend of the show, uh, Keith, actually introduced this to me at a, at a recent uh, get-together. And it, it's a simple card game that has kind of some elements of like the game to it. You're going to have a hand of cards, a big one. You're going to split up the deck, um, and the deck itself consists of cards numbered from 1 to 120. And then you're going to have three rows in front of you. You're going to draft two cards from your hand and place them into one of those rows. And the rows can go up or they can go down. So you can put cards on top or tuck them underneath. But once two cards are next to each other, you can't place cards in between them. So like the game, except it goes up or down. The scoring, however, is based on the type of card. So there's water. Uh, there's, there. I guess I'll just go by the colors. Blue, green, gray, pink. And they all score in different ways. Uh, and they score in different times of the game. So you want the blue ones early in the game. You want If you're going to go for pink, you want as many pink as you can get because you get more points the more of them you have. The gray ones are worth the most points at the end of the game. And, and so you're trying to like manage which types of cards you get and build a, a tableau that will maximize the amount of points you get, not just in the round you're currently in, but in the, you know, the following rounds, right? So like, for example, a blue card in the first round, it's worth three points, second round three, third round three, right? So it's worth nine points if you put one down in the first round. The green one is worth four points, but only in the second and third round. So it's only worth eight points maximum if you put it down in the second. So you kind of have to manage that a little bit. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's quick, very quick. Uh, it comes out differently every time. I had not actually seen or played this previously. So thank you to Keith for throwing this out there. I actually went out and picked up a copy after we played it because it was very accessible. It was very, you know, simple and easy to learn. I uh, played it with the family already a couple times. And yeah, it, it gives a little bit of that, the game vibe to it, but with more strategy, the drafting automatically making it more interesting because it's not cooperative, it's competitive. So I highly recommend it. If you like short, quick card games, um, if you like that kind of mechanism, the abstract nature of like the counting, uh, trying to keep track of what cards are going up and down and just, yeah. Nice, simple, easy, accessible, family-friendly game. Uh, I gave this one a buy because I bought it. So, Ohanami. All right. Well, that's all our At the Tables. Again, check out BoardGamersAnonymous.com for more updates and great games to pick up. All right, Anthony. So, with all that said, let's get on to our feature review. So, for the feature review this week, we are talking about the top 10 board games to play outside. I know you have a favorite list, so I will leave it all to you, my friend. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll do this. Um, so uh, the, the rules for the list, because we're talking about playing outside, right? It is June. We're coming up on the holiday uh, season with 4th of July and barbecues and obviously just trying to be outside in general. And especially for those of us who have children, you know, kind of limited in what you can do because they're not vaccinated yet. So we're talking about games that need to be flat they can't be like weird shaped because they need to sit flat on a table. Pieces should be heavy, wind resistant. Things should not be able to fall through gaps in like picnic tables or get lost in the grass. 
and they need to be space considerate. You want this big sprawling mess of a game that's going to take up, up, you know, tons and tons of space. So these are 10 games that kind of meet most or all of these conditions. Obviously, not everything's going to be perfect, but uh, they give you kind of a different number of options that are not party games that you can play outside if you want to play outside. So first on the list is Hive. Now, we've talked about this one before, usually in this context. I think we talked at one point about games to take on the road with you, like an airplane or a train or a hotel. This game is great because it comes in a little pouch. It's got big, heavy pieces. It's perfect for two players. It doesn't take up a lot of space. And you can play it on pretty much any surface because of the size of the tiles. Uh, It is an abstract game, and it's not for everybody. I, I definitely have met some people who are not a fan, but... If you like abstract games, if you want something quick, small, accessible, you can put it in your pocket. Hive is is really solid for that. You can play this on just about any surface, including the grass, if you want. Uh, Next up, we got Carcassonne at number nine. And so Carcassonne is is a tile laying game, but the tiles are big and the meeples go on top of the tiles, right? So all you need is some kind of flat surface. Now, it can sprawl a little bit, depending on which expansions you're using. But you could throw the tiles literally into like a plastic bag, like a Ziploc bag with the meeples in a little smaller bag. And that's all you need. You throw it in your backpack. You're good to go. Uh, Many different versions of Carcassonne, all of them fairly portable. It's all very flat, you know, simple, easy to teach rules on top of everything else. So this is a game I've actually played in the park myself, and it was pretty smooth. Uh, we did drop one tile through the, the crack on the picnic table, but we found it because they're big. So uh, next up, number eight, Hanabi Deluxe. Now, we, we've talked about Hanabi a little bit on this podcast. We, we're not the world's biggest Hanabi fans. But that said, Hanabi Deluxe, for those who do like Hanabi, who like cooperative games, who like uh, just this type of um, hand management type of game and the memory elements to it comes in a deluxe version with Mahjong style tiles. So instead of the cards that you hold up for everybody to look at, you place the tiles up and that makes it much, much easier to play outside. You can stack them on just about anything. As long as you can't see your own tiles, you're good to go. So there's uh, like a Hanabi deluxe and then a Hanabi deluxe two and how like the second one comes with uh, an expansion. Um, the Master Artisan expansion with six additional tiles. So if you find either of those and this game is something up your alley, it's perfect for outside play. Number seven is Blocus or Blockus, however you want to say it. Um, this one is perfect because you comes with a little tray to put all your stuff in, right? You are building the little te- tetrominoes, polyominoes, whatever you want to call them into a big shared tray space. They're not going to get lost unless you're really goofing around. Um, there are 84 pieces and they some of them can be quite small. So I do recommend having like some kind of bowl or something to hold them in. Uh, maybe there's the other side of the box cover could work as well. Uh, have played this one outside though. Played it with the kids. Managed not to lose anything. So <laughs> just, just the simple fact that you get that grid and they kind of snap into there a little bit is perfect. It holds them all in place. As long as no one bumps that thing, you're set. And honestly, that's the same rule as if you played inside, because if someone bumps that thing inside, also still going to lose all your pieces. So, uh, yeah, Blockus, if you like polyominoes, if you like abstract games, if you like kind of cutthroat takes on that, uh, this is a good game for you, and it plays really well outside. Uh, 
Number six, Patchwork. Uh, this is one I've played the most outside. I brought this with uh, last year when we went camping, me and my family, and we played it pretty much constantly throughout the trip um, for the whole week. Uh, and that was, you know, it's a two-player game only, obviously, but you, everybody wanted to play, so we just took turns playing. It has relatively big, chunky tiles, like because they are the polyominoes. They're big. Um, you do have to lay them out in a big circle for the movement and picking them up, and they do go onto your personal board, but we had no issues with the wind, no issues with the weather. I would say, obviously, if the tables are wet or if you're playing on the ground, you'll want something else layered on top of it so your pieces don't get wet or wrinkled or whatever. But it was a very quick, accessible to small box. You could put all the buttons in the top of the box and keep them there. And the game takes, you know, 20, 30 minutes. So it was a really good fit for playing outside. All right, next one up is Shobu. So you'll notice that, at least in our list, a lot of these are kind of abstract games. And the reason for that is that they play quickly and they tend to have big, heavy pieces. I don't know why, but they're big. So um, Shobu has these four solid wooden boards and then stones, like literal stones that you place on the boards. You could just make a version of this game. Like if you came with a checkerboard or something and broke it up, you could just find find rocks in the park and play Shobu. Uh, that's how simple it is, but it looks so beautiful at the same time. So another two-player abstract game. And uh, because of the portability of it, you could like, it doesn't have to come in the full-size box. You could, you know, pack it down a little bit tighter because those wooden tiles are pretty small. Um, they're four by four grids, each of the four things. So you could even make your own out of paper or something if you wanted to really, really pack it down. And then again, it's a handful of rocks. It's what you're playing with. So <laughs> I think it's 32 rocks. So uh, it, it kind of has a go or a chess feeling, but because the pieces are, there's fewer of them and they're not as fancy or easy to lose or break as like chess pieces, it feels like something that's a little more comfortable and easy to move around with. Uh, you don't need the full size board of a chess board either. Number four is Santorini. Uh, it's another abstract game. This one's a little bit more highly produced. Um, you do not need the big piece of rock that goes underneath your main board. You just throw the board down on a flat surface and then you have your big pile of plastic pieces and you build your buildings. And that, that is about it. Everything's pretty heavy. It all um, is pretty manageable in that space. And I, I've played this one outside in the front yard with the kids quite a few times. Uh, it is generally a two player game, but you can play with more. Uh, it does. If you have really any of the extra pieces or expansion bits, um, I would not recommend playing with four players, but two or three works pretty well. And then you've got to play the God powers, of course, because that's what makes this game so good. But if you're going to pull those cards out, I recommend like tucking them under the board because again, you don't want, you know, we talked about not having games with cards. This game, the cards, all they do is remind you of your power. So just put them somewhere you can see it, but don't like leave it out. It might blow away. <laughs> so no good. Uh, number three on the list is Dragon Castle. It's a Mahjong game. So these tiles are big. They're heavy. It makes a big pile in the middle of the table. They're not going anywhere. People play Mahjong outside all the time. Uh, same thing here as with Santorini. You've got a handful of cards. Like, I, really, there's two. You've got the, the dragon and then the, the spirit there, the element. Find somewhere to put those. Put them in the box. Tuck them under the board, whatever you're going to do. Make sure people can see them, but... Once you know what they are, you don't really need to pick them up or move them around or have them anywhere else. It's just, this is how you score. This is your special power. The end. 
Um, otherwise, you just got a bunch of Mahjong tiles and some little castle pieces, and it, it plays really well outside. And it this one, unlike some of the other uh, abstract games we talked about, is perfect for up to four players. It doesn't only play it two. It plays fine at two, but you can play it three or four, no problem as well. Uh, next one up at number two is Azul, and really any variant of Azul, because these they give you the little factories, the little circles to put the pieces on, so you don't have to worry about the tiles falling out uh, or off the board. Um, you have your own personal playmat, which is very flat, and if you have any of the newer bits and upgrades, maybe you have like a thicker version of it or the overlay, which really holds stuff in place. And then the pieces themselves obviously are just that same quality as like the dragon castle pieces. They're thick, they're heavy, they're they're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're not stacking them. You're not building anything out of them. You're just building your pattern on your personal board and that's about it. So really any version of Azul is perfect for this particular um, you know, type of thing. If you're going outside, playing at a picnic, wherever. Um, my personal is a summer pavilion, which I think is very, uh, you know, a good match for playing outside right now in the middle of summer. But if you like original or the stained glass of Sintra, all of them are great. Highly recommended. Good family games. Uh, I've played these outside with the family as well. And then number one is not an abstract game at all. It is Roll Through the Ages. So really any roll and write game would work here. You have a piece of paper, a pencil, and some dice, typically. Um, any of the newer, like, flip and writes aren't really great for this. Like, Welcome To is our number one roll and write, but it's not a roll and write. It's a big deck of cards, and you don't want that big deck of cards sitting out there if you get a gust of wind. Game over, right? So uh, Roll Through the Ages is a good alternative because you get a board, big heavy board, and pegs that you hold in there to keep track of all your resources. The only thing you got to hold down is your sheet of paper that you're drawing on. The dice are big, they're wood, they're not going anywhere. Um, this was designed as a pub game, something to play in a restaurant or at a bar with a bunch of stuff going around uh, at a small table. So it's obviously going to work really well outside as well. And I would say any roll and write that doesn't have too many bits. So Gonshon Clever, Castles of Burgundy, any of those like smaller, simpler, more accessible roll and writes, if you like roll and writes, uh, would also be good for outside play. But Roll Through the Ages in particular is a classic. It's perfect. It's designed for this kind of thing. So I do highly recommend it for outdoor play. And that's why it's our number one. All right. Very cool. So a lot of games to get out to the table and outside. All right. So until next time, this is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table outside. Take care, everybody. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together with our Patreon backers. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. Anthony, we are back for another special episode thanks to our Patreon backers. And this one in particular, I'm really excited about because this wasn't something that we came up with. This was something that our Patreon backers came up with. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we did a, a review. I did a review of Iki, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago at, at this point. And the the whole point of that was I've had this game for two years and I finally got to play it. Woo! But I think people like that just because it was something off the beaten path. It's a game nobody's really heard of. And so when I put out the request, uh, Antoine in our Slack group uh 
recommended that we do other games that are not made in the US or Europe, where most board games are made. So we did a little research, pulled some games that we've actually played together, a few others that we've heard good things about or had a chance to demo, and we have about seven or eight different games here, might even be a little bit more than that, that are from other countries outside of Europe and the United States that are worth taking a look at. Yeah, and you can tell from the games themselves the uniqueness of its culture, of its society, of its historical past plays into the games. So always really interesting to play board games, especially the little bit more crunchy Euro games, because you get a map that possibly you may not be typically familiar with because of the artwork or because of basically geographically, you may not be familiar with that. And all the different languages and cultures and everything really comes out in the game in a really unique way. And I don't know, for me personally, it's kind of funny because like growing up watching Looney Tunes, it turns out that I learned so much about classical music, but I only realized that much, much, much later on that I was, you know, hearing these classic pieces. And now as an adult, when I play board games and I walk away from a table and I'm watching something on television or people talking and I'm like, oh, I know exactly where that is. And, oh, I understand why they do that. Uh, just recently, a friend of mine went to Portugal and he was posting pictures about Lisbon and he was showing about the these different constructions of the buildings and how the rubble was made up of the foundation. I'm like, Lisboa, they actually do use these cubes or in that case, the rubble that from their tragic history to rebuild these buildings and how interesting, how thematic that was for me personally. And I actually got a knew a piece of history without actually even being there. So these games tell us so much about our world and the different people that inhabit it and our relationship to them. And it's really a wonderful way to kind of connect and communicate with different cultures and different backgrounds. So I'm actually really excited about this. And if you're a Patreon backer, which of course you are because you're listening to this episode, please hit us up with more interesting topics so that we can follow up on a future episode and put something that you want to hear out on the table. So with Anthony, with that said, I know you have a tremendous list for us. So why don't you start us off? All right. So let's kick it off here. The first game I wanted to talk about is the game that we reviewed just a few weeks ago, Iki. This is by Kota Yamada. Uh, it's from the publisher Utsuroi. And it was available, I believe, on Kickstarter originally. So mm -hmm. you could get it in the US. It is currently still on the BGG store. It's been up there a couple times. I'm looking at it now. They have it in stock. And this is a great little rondelle game in which you are moving around and activating different artisans in, in the, the marketplace and building up points based on basically getting these artisans to the point where they can retire, come back in front of you and be worth points at the end of the game. So it's, it's all about kind of manipulating the board and putting things out in places where people will interact with them. There are dozens of cards, a lot of different professions. It ramps up really well. The board is beautiful. The artwork is beautiful. It's all this, you know, same style of woodblock print artwork um, on the cards, on the board, on the cover of the box, all sorts of great content. So it is, um, it's a game that's made it into my collection as just a really solid mid-weight strategy game. It picks about an hour and a half or so, and it doesn't really play like anything else that I've played. So I'm really glad I managed to track this one down. I think I got it at Gen Con like two, three years ago, actually, from the publisher. I'm glad it's actually available for other people as well. Yeah, I really love this. You know, so much of the manga and anime that I, that I watch and read comes typically from that Edo period. So to be able to see this in a board game 
that isn't just a typical pandering, but is culturally sensitive and really, you know, shows the experience of life back then with this authentic artwork. And this is definitely one of those types of games that if you bring this to the game night, everyone's going to want to play and pretty much no one else is going to have this. So this is definitely something that people should look at. And man, do I love a rondelle? Yes. Yes. All right. So the next one up on the list is a game that I was introduced to by um, one of our listeners. Actually, we met them at a convention of a few years back, uh, Michael, and it's the Capitals. So the Capitals is a city building economic game from Brazil, uh, designer Tiago Boaventura and publisher Mercury Games. And it is it looks a lot like any other you know city building game but it does have its own little quirks and special flavor and coloring it definitely feels different than all these other city building games that you have that are very staid and very you know they're not as colorful and this isn't really cartoony i'd say but it's just it has more life to it than a lot of these other games um it it really captures kind of the fun and joy of building a city at least for me i i find joy in these things um and the whole idea here is you're trying to earn the right to to host the next world expo so you're trying to build not just a city but like a world-class city um Mm -hmm. you know starting from victorian area moving up to modern day so it's kind of a cool take on things kind of a south american view on western city building and it looks really cool yeah, this game is often compared to in, I guess, in the same breath with Suburbia. But whereas Suburbia is a fantastic game, it really does lack the spirit of the Capitals in particular because you are building this very plain, industrial, monochromatic kind of Suburbia area that typically everybody here in the U.S. more or less tends to live in where it's just like, one section's commercial, one section's industrial. This is residential. But here in the capitals, it's a there's a different mentality to it to actually have a living city where it's the culture and the color and its hospitality is shown in its design. And once again, that's very in- innovative and something that I haven't seen in a typical kind of sim builder, at least in the board game format. Yeah, for sure. All right, so the next one here is another game that kind of takes a... Uh, a mechanic we're all familiar with and I enjoy and it has a kind of a unique twist on it and that's patch history and I'm going to mess up these names for the designers but it's Yung Min Jung and Jun Hyuk Kim uh, from Denko Games and mm-hmm. this was it was actually released in the west it was available for a little while um, and it is a civilization game a city kind of a little bit of city building in there but mostly kind of a civilization uh, approach and unlike a lot of other games in which you're laying out tiles and little miniatures and building out this big sprawling thing or building cards out in the case of Through the Ages, you're building a patchwork with these little tiles. So it takes place over three eras. You have a five by five in the first era, then it goes to six by six and then seven by seven. And you are trying to lay it out in a certain way to activate cards in a certain way to build up your civilization and it has everything that you'd expect with diplomatic actions domestic politics war is involved in the game as well um it's a little difficult to learn the rules are pretty dense it's hard to lay out there were some component issues but at its core it's a very very solid civilization game um out of south korea and one that i wish you saw more often especially because it had that release out here but it's a very solid game um it was nominated for the goblin magnifico back in 2015 so that's the top game in uh, Italy, I believe. And so it's gotten a lot of recognition, but it's kind of dropped off in recent years. I don't see it out as much. 
Yeah, one of my favorite mechanics is tableau building, and I love civilization games, and we've talked about so many civilization schemes previously. What's interesting about patch history is that all of the characters, all of the resources, all of the monuments and structures that make up that particular culture actually do, once again, as, as the title would infer, they are patched together. So when you build this tableau, it's not like you have your leaders all the way to the left and you have your buildings all the way to the right, kind of like a, a Seven Wonders kind of setup where all of these things are separate, but we know culturally they're not. The monuments are there because of the great leaders, the resources are there because of the people, so forth and so on. And when you look at the table and you see this tapestry kind of put together, it literally does kind of evoke patch history in a, in a nutshell. So, yep, it's a great game. All right, so moving on to the next one. We have Three Kingdoms Redo. This is a game that for a long time was hard to find. It was available on the Board Game Geek Store for a short period of time, but Capstone Games picked it up about a year ago, and so now it is much easier to find. It is a three-player-only game, and it is based on the Han Dynasty, and which going back to like the 3rd century BC, um, all the way up through the 2nd century, uh, and the Yellow Turban Rebellion. So it's a very, very popular theme and uh, period in Chinese history, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Famous stories are written about this. There's dozens of movies. It's very popular. And so this is kind of the ultimate board game representation of that. It has a little bit of everything. You've got the economic engines in it. You've got territory building. You've got the area and influence controllers, a little bit of bidding, some card draft. There's everything you can think of in this big, big, heavy game. It's got a weight of like a 4.03. The time on the box is up to around three hours. I think that's probably on the low end. It's a big, long, only three-player game. Very dense and hard to get into. But if you can play it, and appreciate it, and you enjoy these kind of heavy games, it's fantastic. And uh, it's coming out of Singapore uh, and kind of touching on this theme in, uh, in a new interesting way that Western games have touched on, but not really as in-depth and certainly not as based on the original literature um, as this game is. Uh, it's it's kind of a one-of-a-kind experience you're not going to find anywhere else. Yeah, this reminds me of Twilight Imperium 4 in a lot of ways because you really are playing out that civilization in this kind of epic format, solid, crunchy game. As you said, long game, you are typically playing out every part of that civilization. And especially from a you know a part of history that we typically don't take a look at. So I really like to see this on the list. All right, so next one up here is out of Australia. This is unfair. This is not a hidden or unknown game. It was on Kickstarter, made a lot of money, came out last year. But it is, it's kind of an interesting story because the company that published this is actually a chain of game stores in Australia. We actually met, met these guys in Indianapolis last year at Gen Con. And this particular game is a very, it's not unique in a lot of ways, but it does have a lot of cool ideas and you're building out a tableau and it can be kind of mean, but it doesn't have to be mean. <laughs> and it's very clever and creative and does some pretty cool stuff that you don't necessarily see in other games of kind of this weight. So it... I don't know, it's kind of all over the place in terms of how you describe it, but at its core, you're building a theme park, it's card drafting, and you are trying to, to get the best possible attractions and upgrades and workers on your side, and then do damage to everybody else when you have a chance. And uh, it's a fun game. If you haven't had a chance to play it, you definitely should track it down. Don't let the meanness of it scare you away. Um, there will be a couple moments in the game where people pick on each other, but like most games like this, usually you're just working on your own stuff. 
Yeah, and you need a tremendous amount of table space because this game has cards to no end. But basically, as Anthony said, you're building up some crazy amusement park here. And you could tell this is a game for gamers because every possible game mechanic as far as a tableau builder is concerned using kind of take that cards is here in this game. But I, I guarantee you, if there's one good thing about this game, you'll never run out of options. So, interesting. All right. Uh, next game on the list here is Corona de Hierro. This game is... It's a game about it's medieval times and there's point to point movement based on die rolls and your little dudes. It won several awards. Um, the Premio Alfonso y Mejor Production. <laughs> I'm saying these things horribly, I know. It is award for the, the best games published in Argentina. So this is an Argentinian designer. Um, again, another game out of South America. And uh, it's it just looks very interesting. It's kind of the game we don't really have in North America yet. Um, has been released in the West, but it's getting a lot of good buzz um, from designer Franco Toffoli. Yeah, I really like to look at this game. And as you mentioned, Anthony, this is not just we haven't gotten this game here, but we haven't had this type of game mechanics here previously. So I'm not sure if Board Game Geek has to do this or someone has to pick this up, but people should really be promoting this game because... I think that if this game does get a U.S. distributor, it would kind of make a big splash. Yeah, for sure. And I think Board Game Geek does a lot of that. So yes. we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Next up here is Tokyo Highway. This is, as you can guess, out of Japan um, from designers <laughs> Nautaka Shimamoto and Yoshiaki Tomioka. It looks really cool. I mean, you, if you look at the game, you have all these different levels of pillars and then these sticks that you're trying to lay across them and you're trying to move your cars along. It's it's a dexterity game. It's also a root building game. It finds a way to mix the two. Like it has some strategic elements in the game. It's not, you know, the weights around it too. It's not like a complete, just straight dexterity game, but it's also a dexterity game. So the mixture of those two things and something that you see in, you know, several other Japanese designs is, it's a small, compact game, mixes a lot of unique elements, and does it in a kind of clever, almost abstract way. I mean, you're not, you don't have these big cars or these big, you know, the production here is not way over the top, but it's a lot of cool ideas. And this is a game that I also picked up, I believe, on the Board Game Geek store. So uh, they hit us up there as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, Anthony, Japanese design, especially infrastructure, modern, clean, sleek, simple but beautiful and this game kind of embodies all of that it's just something to kind of behold just from an aesthetic point of view but the gameplay is one of those things where it's simple it's very logical and once you get hang of it it's something that you definitely would love all right so speaking of simple uh, we have guns and steel this is a um, civilization card game that was released in Taiwan um, back in 2015 and then Tasty Minstrel brought it uh, to the West on Kickstarter I believe a year or two ago. So this is a game that you were able to get at some point. Um, before that it was relatively hard to find but it is it's designed by Jesse Lee and it is a almost purely card-based uh, civilization game. Pretty light on the artwork, pretty light overall mechanically speaking. I think it's a, around a weight two and a half so compared to other uh, Civ games, it's kind of on the lower end, and it takes about an hour, hour and a half to play. But the whole idea of like technology being both good and bad and mixing in a take that element into a civilization game, it, it's cool. Uh, 
And some people don't like it as much, but I find it very interesting and unique. And anytime you take mechanics and themes that I really like and add new cool stuff to it, I'm all about it. Yeah, I think what's interesting is typically when you're playing a civilization game, it's all about building a civilization to a point, but it doesn't take into consideration the kind of the roller coaster and the ups and downs. This game does because it's not all about just kind of building up, but how do you recover from a fall? And there will be several falls in this game and obviously trying to take out your opponent throughout the game. But at the same time, you're trying to, you know, strategically place yourself so you're in the best position to win. A really different mindset is needed to play this game. And I, I don't think I've seen a civilization game like this before. All righty. And then the last game on the list is Rescue Polar Bears, um, originally by Derek Darren Black and Huang Yiming, and then re-implemented by Rescue Polar Bears data and temperature designers Zhou Kung and Huang Yiming. This is out of China, and it is a game about rescuing polar bears, as you might imagine. So we actually saw this at PAX. They had a, a copy of this there. It's relatively recent. I think the original game came out in 2016, and it was re-implemented in kind of this updated version last year. And it is a cooperative game in which you are, as you might guess, trying to rescue polar bears from global warming as all the ice melts and they die. So it's depressing, but <laughs> mechanically speaking, it's actually a very solid game and has a lot of very interesting ideas. And honestly, anytime a game... Um, especially cooperative games, which I think do this really well, take a theme that's kind of thorny and makes people think and does something good with it where the game is actually well implemented and fun to play, even if the theme is a little heavy. I'm all about that. So this is a game that, uh, you know, hopefully gets some uh, attention out West because I think it's, you got these cute little polar bear meeples and then their ice is disappearing and it's just, it's it has an impact. Yeah, and this is one of those games, and once again, as you mentioned, like taking Chinese culture into consideration, it's not that American bravado where everything works out, everything's going to be perfect. It's There's actually wind conditions in this game that are not always the most positive. You're just trying to do the best that you can. And obviously in this thematic and real life situation, these things are happening. Polar bears are being wiped out. So maybe a call to action in this place. Actually, this game is trying to do that there. The pieces and components in this game are amazing. They're top-notch. I, I really do love this game and would recommend you take a look at it just, just from the, the aesthetics. I mean, it's so elegant and beautiful. And as Anthony said, it's very sad. I mean, you just take a look at the cover and you take a look at the state of the world. We got to do something. Maybe this game helps a little bit to that end. And I think it's definitely something that people should check out. It's a really good co-op game for about one to four players. Yeah, for sure. And I think this one was up on Kickstarter originally. So uh, I don't think it's shipped out yet. I don't think it's available everywhere. But we did see a copy. We did get a chance to to take a look at it um, just a few months ago. And that's that's an important part of this, too. Like, you might be hearing some of these and be like, well, where is that even available? And for the most part, if you look hard enough, most of these games do become available. I think half the games we talked about were either published by or released by a Western publisher uh, for the U.S. and Europe. And the rest of them... You've got people like the Board Game Geek Store, which imports a lot of stuff, like especially out of Japan. I think they go to the, the game market every year and they bring back a lot of games because I've gotten several uh, Japanese games that I quite enjoy directly from the Board Game Geek Store. So that's definitely a place to check out if you haven't yet. Yeah, I picked up a number of the Oink games before they kind of had the, I guess, the U.S. distribution on some level and really enjoyed it. I got Deep Sea Adventure, which was like $22, and I, I played that game a whole bunch. And there's just a lot of great ideas that are going around internationally. 
And one of the great things about our industry and board gaming in general is that those ideas can be made tangible by almost anybody, whether it's through Kickstarter or the Board Game Geek Store or print and play or just gamers sharing games. I mean, we are a great and diverse community of people internationally, culturally, and every other way possible. So these games are a great representation that gaming is going on around the world and everyone's enjoying this fantastic hobby. So let people know if you do like these games and it'll hit our shores a lot sooner and support those great designers who maybe haven't had the attention that some other designers have had. So wonderful list, a trip around the world with Anthony exploring all these wonderful games and once again thanks to all our patreon backers for helping us bring this episode to the table all right until next time this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you a seat at our international board gaming table